Hey friends, are you struggling to attract and retain top talent? If you're worried about recruiting and retention, consider Insperity, a leading HR provider. They'll help you improve hiring and compensation practices so you can spend more time growing your business and less time on HR. Visit Insperity.com and download their free ebook on how to build your dream team. Don't let a lack of talent hinder your success. See how Insperity provides HR that makes a difference at Insperity.com. When it comes to teaching kids and teens about money, practice makes perfect. That's where Greenlight comes in. With a debit card and money app of their own, kids learn to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest. Parents send instant money transfers, create custom chores, and automate allowance. While kids track their spending, set savings goals, and practice money skills they can use today and for life. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast. I'm John Golia. And I'm Greg Fife. And we are the Flight Safety Detectives. We're just two guys who have spent most of their career with the National Transportation Safety Board investigating aircraft disasters and aviation safety issues all over the world. Yep, and this podcast is where we talk about everything from accidents, airplane technology, to the big business of aviation. We live and breathe aviation. My co-host John has been in the aviation business for more than 60 years. He was the first and only airframe and power plant mechanic to get a presidential appointment to the National Transportation Safety Board. And Greg is a former air safety investigator and GO team captain for the NTSB. He's investigated everything that flies worldwide since he started his career 40 years ago. And on top of that, he is a living legend of aviation inductee. So between John and myself, we have over 100 years of aviation safety experience. It's time to buckle up because it's going to be wheels up. Let's get this show in the air. Hey, John, how are we today? All is well here in the east. What part of the east are you in? I am in southern Florida. We like southern Florida. As long as the weather's good, no tornadoes, hurricanes, or anything else. That's good to know. That is true. I'm on my, it was just up to a place called Clewiston, Florida, which is in the middle of the Everglades. A place I would highly recommend if you're looking to run away from the world. And what were you doing in Clewiston that you were trying to run away? Oh, I, I sit, in fact, uh, Loretta and I both sit on a, on a board for a little airport up there that's growing like crazy and it's going to be not so little in the near future. Well, that's a good segue into who our guest is today on this show. Why don't you introduce Loretta so that people know who you're talking about and who you spent, you know, some time with in the middle of the Everglades. All right. So today we're going to talk to Loretta Alkali, who is a former regional counsel for the FAA in the Eastern Region. And after retiring from the FAA some roughly 10 years ago, is it? It's uh, starting my 11th year. Starting her 11th year, she has been working with drones and uh, has picked up a nickname of the Drone Queen. And she's been very, very active in the drone community and a big promoter of drones for schools, trying to get kids engaged in aviation using drones. And there is a presently a notice of proposed rulemaking that's working its way through the system from the FAA, which by many accounts is not very favorable to the small drone operators. It tends to lend itself 
for the big guys, the Amazons and the FedExes that want to take over the airspace below 500 feet. So that I thought this would be a good time for us to uh, go over some of the, the workings of this proposal and what it means to the people who enjoy drones and uh, are engaged in them, not only for, as small businesses, but just for enjoyment. What I like best about drones is the fact that it really excites the young people. And the good thing is, is that it's become very timely again. You know, there was a wave of uh, drone activity for a while. There was a lot of misunderstanding by not only the professional community, but of course the hobbyists of uh, thinking that the FAA was meddling in the hobbyist business of taking away their pleasure of being able to fly drones. There was a bit of a fear factor about the use of these drones and the illegal use of the drones. And of course, there still continues to be a, a huge issue with regard to drones and encroaching in the national airspace system that could potentially cause hazard to aircraft, i.e. those large aircraft flying into major commercial airports and creating a, uh, a safety issue. So uh, I think that our podcast about the drones and having uh, Loretta, and by the way, hello, Loretta, how are you today? Hey, Greg. And having Loretta talk about it from a position of expertise since she has been involved, even before drones were real popular, I think that at least the listeners will get a better understanding of not only what the, the FAA wants to propose, but, you know, the impact on the hobbyist and maybe quell some of the fears or blow away some of the myths that are still out there because there always seems to be a misinterpretation of the information that's presented in an NPRM, that's Notice of Proposed Rulemaking. And so I'm glad that you're on the show today, Loretta, so that maybe you can clear up some of this mess that gets created by the embellishment of stories or publications who want to interpret some of the uh, the NPRM suggestions or recommendations in the wrong way, if you will. Okay, I'm happy to to do that. All right, so one of the things that we want to talk to you about today is some common myths about drones, where they can fly, where they can't fly. Why should a would an individual or a pilot get a 107 license? And explain what the, the parts are, because we have a lot of listeners that are non-aviation. We have uh, new listeners and things like that. So just give us an overview real quick of the one, part 107, what it is, um, and then what, uh, what it advocates as far as drone pilots being licensed, not just out there certificated or anything, but they actually have to have a license by passing a test. Okay, so prior to August of 2016, when the FAA Part 107 went into effect, it was kind of very difficult time for anyone who wanted to fly drones commercially because there were a couple of years where the FAA actually required a manned aircraft license to commercially fly drones. Of course, for decades before that, people had been using drones and even used them, or drones, model aircraft. Model aircraft and drones are, uh, the terms are used pretty much synonymously, even though most people think of drones as quadcopters, they can also be uh, shaped like aircraft. So prior to that time, people flew model aircraft, and there really were no rules. But 
couple of years ago, many of you can probably remember that there was a certain amount of hysteria with regard to drones and their proliferation. And I think in the in the beginning, there was a lot of fear because people thought that these uh, small flying vehicles would take over the skies. But I think one of the things that uh, most of us have seen is that it's not the small hobby drones or small commercial operators that are really going to have an impact, but uh, the Amazons and Googles and Facebooks of the world when they start to operate commercially on a regular basis. But getting back to your question about Part 107, so Part 107 basically allows people who fly drones to fly them commercially. You can also fly non-commercially under Part 107, and it allows you to do certain things that a hobbyist can't do. And one of the myths, and I know a lot of your audience is a pilot audience, and one of the things that's important for pilots to know from a safety perspective is that some common beliefs are not correct. So, for example, a lot of people think that drones can't legally fly above 400 feet, and that is not correct. So if you're a GA pilot and you think, oh, well, I'm safe as long as I'm above 400 feet in a rural area, let's say, under Part 107 in Class G, drones can legally fly 400 feet above the highest obstacle within 400 feet. So you might encounter a drone at five, six, 700 feet, 800 feet. They still have to comply, for example, with visual line of sight. They have to stay out of controlled airspace without authorization. But just the idea that pilots, GA pilots or helicopters are okay if they stay above 400 feet is not correct. So recreationally, the rules right now are confused because the FAA had promulgated regulations based on a section of an old statute called Section 336. And under that section and the old rules, model aircraft could fly basically without any altitude limit. Now, a new law has been passed that recreational drones, not those flying under 107, are limited to 400 feet. But the confusion comes up because the FAA has not taken the old rules off the books. So there's a lot of confusion in the recreational world. Why is there a delay in taking those old rules off and creating all this confusion? Because it's not like, they well, maybe they do have their head in the sand, but, I mean, they have to know that this has created a level of confusion. Well, I think because the commercial drone industry, the commercial, the big commercial operators lobbied Congress to repeal the Section 336 that allowed model aircraft to do certain things and put in an immediately effective law that basically would have grounded, if the FAA had chosen to fully comply with that law, it would have grounded all hobby drones that were not flown under Part 107. And I guess the FAA decided it didn't want to do that, so it came up with this interim process 
for complying with the law. And I believe to allow the Academy of Model Aeronautics members to continue to fly their drones, they, I believe, I don't have any inside information, but I believe that that's why they kept Part 101 on the book. So Part 101 was the section of the regulations that followed the Section 336 that had been repealed by the 2018 FAA Reauthorization Act. So basically, it's a very confusing time for people who try to understand what the FAA is doing and following the rules if you're flying recreationally. That's why I recommend people who want to fly recreationally should consider getting the Part 107 certificate because at least you know what the rules are. I I think it's a very confusing time for recreational uh, flyers. But I did want to mention one other myth that GA pilots and other pilots, especially helicopter pilots, might want to be familiar with. And that's uh, the myth that drones can't legally fly within five miles of an airport. That's just not correct. So under Part 107, you could always fly in Class G near an airport. And under the new law for recreational flyers, that's true also. So drones, whether flown recreationally or under Part 107, in Class G airspace, can legally fly near airports. However, they do have to make sure that they don't interfere with aircraft landing or taking off. They have to give the right of way, etc. But if you're a GA pilot or you know, even an airline pilot, I, I see a lot of the reports that say, oh, there was a drone within five miles. Well, that doesn't mean it's illegal. And even in controlled airspace, there are um, areas where you can get automated approval. There's areas where you can get waivers. So even recreational pilots now can get automated approval. It's through an app. And depending on where it is in relation to the traffic patterns for the airport, you might even be able to fly up to 400 feet in some areas. And I was just going to say, Loretta, you bring up some interesting points because, one, you're talking about airspace. One of the big issues that, you know, all of us pilots have, especially the most accomplished pilots, but more more than likely the lesser, the, the novice pilots, the student pilots, things like that, is the complexity of, of the airspace because we do have airspace A, B, C, D, G. And so when you look at the structure of the airspace, if you're intending to fly these drones, like you said, within five nautical miles of an airport, which for a long time people believed, and you know, even today people believe that that was you know, a sanctuary where yeah, within five miles of an airport, you weren't going to find a drone. And, and as you stated, that's not true. And and it's so important that to understand the airspace, you have to study it. And that's why I, I think that, like you were talking about, those folks that want to fly drones, especially in close proximity to airports, whether it's for uh, purposes of, you know, the fact that that's where they have a piece of property or there's a flying club there that they get that certificate or that, that license because that forces them to understand the national airspace structure. 
Right. Well, the new recreational rules are going to have a test, which I assume will include airspace because the new recreational rules require drone pilots to stay out of controlled airspace without approval. The reason that I have a lot of concerns with what the FAA has done, and I think in some ways they've over-regulated, and in other ways, I think they've failed to actually reach the drone flying public. Because at the point where you buy a drone, you really have no reason to believe that you've walked into this complex airspace situation because there's no point of sale requirements. So you can buy a drone. I mean, why would you think that buying a drone at Walmart, all of a sudden you had become an aircraft owner? You think you've just bought a toy. But I think that one thing that manned aircraft pilots can do is invite drone pilots into their community at local airports and teach them about what they do and how they do it and that way build a kind of rapport so that each understands the other, and I think we would have a safer system that way. The other thing that I think is good news for everybody, especially um, manned aircraft who rightly have some concerns, is that I really believe that a lot of people buy drones and don't actually fly them for more than a few minutes because flying a drone requires, you know, a certain amount of knowledge and work. So even though, you know, you can fly them right out of the box, it's really not that easy to do that. And a lot of people, I mean, you can see that most people go out and you don't see drones all over the sky the way some people were predicting. So I think that the biggest airspace issues are going to come up when there's delivery drones and more drones fighting for that same lower altitude airspace as GA and helicopter pilots are, are using today. Now, one of the, the issues uh, we had recently out here in Colorado, it made national news was that over the eastern part of the, the state, there were these mysterious drones flying around at night in, you know, a variety of, of formations. And there was multiple drones. They were estimated to be, you know, six to eight feet in diameter. They could never, I mean, they had local law enforcement. They had FBI. They had the FAA. They had all the alphabet groups out there trying to chase down these drones because there were so many multiple sightings. And apparently they were never able to determine the origin or the operator of those drones. And of course, that created a bit of a panic in some of these small rural towns that maybe it's terrorists that are practicing out in the boonies somewhere some dastardly deed it was the military possibly experimenting but there was no information and nobody could track down the source i mean i know that these regulations are for those law-abiding citizens but you know how do we control these mystery drone operations if there is a way to do that is there a way to track this and is the faa intending through these regulations to try and put tighter lockdowns on these operators so that in the event of a nefarious type act, 
they're going to be able to trace the source. Well, first of all, let me just, um, most people, or a lot of people, at least in the drone community, me including, are not really convinced that those were drones. I mean, we have had so many bogus sightings of so-called drones that really it's hard to believe what people say they saw without greater proof. And as you know, that there have been a number of incidents or accidents that were attributed to drones, and then they ended up being birds or, you know, somebody claimed that they saw a drone and maybe it was a plastic bag. So I'm very skeptical of these uh, drone sightings. I think that there is, you know, definitely the potential for nefarious use of, of drones, but I think that the, um, the FAA's proposal for remote identification and the comment period closed yesterday. There were over 51,000 comments in response to the remote ID rule. I think it indicates how much concern there was with with the rule. And I think what happened, I think that remote, I personally feel that remote identification is appropriate for drones that are going to be integrated with manned aircraft. But I actually don't see that this particular rule would have been very helpful to that integration because it wasn't like ADSB, and I'm not an expert on ADSB, but you could not use this remote ID rule for separation of manned and unmanned aircraft. So basically, you would have been able to identify people flying drones, including where the drone operator was located, and that information under the proposal would have been available to the public, which is, of course, I think a huge privacy and security issue for the drone operator. But it's just not clear that it would have in any way prevented nefarious operators from operating. So a lot of the technical issues with the proposal are sort of beyond my knowledge. I wouldn't talk about that. But it was definitely a killer for hobbyists. And it was definitely a killer for people who build students and innovation because the rules uh, would have required a very laborious process for including remote ID on drones, and it would have limited the ability of students to build and fly their drones outside of basically designated FAA fields. One of the things that attracted me to drones early on was the fact that it did excite so many young people. I mean, it really, when you see them, when they get involved with drones, they're totally engaged. And that's a great entry into aviation. And today we need everybody that we can get to enter into aviation. Yeah, it really seems crazy at a time when we're lagging behind other countries in terms of STEM And we're trying to increase the number of students who go into technical fields, including aviation, to cut off their ability to build drones by making it so expensive. One of the very easy to understand pieces of it would have increased the cost to register your your drone. So right now, hobbyists can register basically 
one drone and they can, or they register themselves and they can have hundreds of drones under that. But the new proposal would have required every single hobby drone to be separately registered, which seems like, oh yeah, great. You know, it's $5. So, you know, you have three or four drones, but the truth is that people have 10, 20, 30 drones. They don't, a lot of people have 40 or 50 drones, and it does become very expensive. It also would have required, if you wanted to fly outside of designated fields, it would have required basically subscribing to a service, which was not going to be free, even though the FAA didn't have any estimates. Pretty much everyone assumes that there would be payment in some way. One of the things that I really did not like about the NPRM is that the preamble, in one particular respect, completely differed from the rule itself, so the proposed rule. So in the preamble, the FAA talks at length about the ability to retrofit drones and how 90% of the drones could be retrofitted so that they could comply with the remote ID rule. Well, you know, that sounds great except that when you go to the rule itself, there is no provision in the proposed rule for retrofitting. And I just thought that that was really a misleading economic analysis for the FAA to do. And the other assumption that the FAA made is that nobody kept drones for three or four years because the technology changes so quickly, which I thought was was a really a kind of an elitist argument because a lot of people keep drones for a lot longer than three or four years because they can't afford to replace them. In fact, I gave one of my older drones to a charitable organization that uses them to train veterans on drone technology. So those older drones are being used. Loretta, when, when it, you look at this NPRM, you identified the issues that you've just talked about. Is the FAA really, have they really studied and entertained input from those groups that can provide useful feedback? Or are they jumping the gun trying to get something out there? They need to put something out on the street to try and stay ahead of what they believe could be, you know, a firestorm of uh, drone operators. Well, I think what happened was, I mean, the, the, the FAA has had a drone advisory committee for a number of years, and the advisory committee made recommendations. My understanding was, and again, this is not official from anybody in the FAA, but it's my understanding that the FAA was pressured by the uh, security agencies to stand firm and not come out with a reasonable rule. And then they also had pressure to issue something. So in the FAA way, they issued something that obviously 51,000 people thought they should comment on it. I think that maybe the FAA wanted to get 51,000 comments so that they could tell the security agencies, you know, look, you know, you, you have all these concerns, but this is why we can't do it the way you want to do it. The other thing that the FAA has done is it issued a proposal for flights over people and for night flying. It, it issued that NPRM, I think, about a year ago. 
but it put it on hold saying that they wouldn't approve that until they had an, a remote ID rule. And to me, it was almost like holding the commercial operators that need to be able to operate over people hostage to a remote ID rule. But I think judging from the comments, I don't think we're going to see a remote ID rule anytime soon. And that's going to limit the commercial use of drones, which can be very, obviously, very beneficial in a lot of situations, you know, search and rescue, delivering medicine in rural areas, law enforcement. Even firefighting. Firefighting, right. Watson fires. And let me switch gears now with the drones. You know, one of the things that, uh, of course, you know, is is practical and, and regulatory in flying manned aircraft, that is any kind of general aviation, light sport, all the way up through commercial transport, is the fact that we as aircraft owners are required to maintain the airplane to a standard. We have to have an annual inspection. We have to fix certain things on an airplane to ensure that they are airworthy to really protect not only our safety as as pilots and operators, but of course, the safety of the public (laughs) below that aircraft as well. Do you see anything where the FAA is going to require specific airworthiness requirements for these drones, you know, periodic maintenance to ensure reliability and capability? Because I think one of the fears is a drone getting away from because of a spurious signal, it goes off and starts doing its own thing. Now, I know that because I fly drones as well as you guys, it has a go home or a come to or, you know, it has a designated spot. But, you know, it's all ones and zeros operating. And if you have a spurious signal or if you have a malfunction and that thing takes off, you know, an eight foot drone is going to do some serious damage. So do you see anything along those lines be incorporated into these rules, more robust maintenance, maintenance oversight of these drones as they uh, they come more into really commercial operation? Yeah, I think definitely the ones that are used, I think that there's been like two Part 135 certificates given to drone operators. I think definitely when they're used in that kind of commercial service, I mean, right now, basically, they're used visual line of sight. They're not supposed to be flown over people. So I think right now, if you comply with the rules, I think that the chances of something going awry and and causing a major problem are fairly confined because most people are flying pretty small drones. I mean, there are Part 107 goes up to 55 pounds, but that's more, you know, the far exception in terms of the weights that people are flying. And in controlled airspace, you're supposed to uh, notify the tower if you have something like a a flyaway. But you really, um, I mean, at least with the drones that I fly, they've become really reliable in a way that the earlier drones weren't. I mean, I don't hear very much about flyaways at all anymore. And if you remember in the past, the forums were just filled with flyaways, which doesn't mean that it can't happen. But I think the biggest safety rule right now for drone pilots would be to 
just fly visual line of sight and not over crowds of people. I think by adding in all this, you know, airspace requirements and distance from clouds, and I think they just made it so complicated that you can't get the word out to the to the novice operators on like the really truly essential safety issues. If somebody's going to fly, they're going to fly whether there's clouds in the sky. They're not aware of the process. They're not aware of the problems other than crashing their drone and costing themselves some money. They're not going to go to the FAA and say, what am I supposed to be doing? It's up to the FAA and the groups of pilots and hobbyists and the rest of us to get the word out to these people that are buying them in Walmart and using them. And I agree with you, Loretta, about the, the use. In my complex where I live, there was uh, two people I saw after Christmas that were flying around the facility uh, with their drones. And I saw them a couple of times right after Christmas. I have not seen them since. Yeah, I mean, I live in Westchester County, which is one of the wealthiest counties. I'm sure that people can afford to buy drones. I don't think I've ever seen a drone other than my own anywhere that I, you know, in parks or by the river. I mean, I'm sure people fly there, but it's not in huge numbers that people were foreseeing. And Loretta, you know, one of the things that is also talked about, you know, because of, quote, the liability of the potential for an accident, what's the insurance industry doing? What uh, Are they going to set any limits? Are they going to set requirements? Do they really endorse what the FAA is doing? And really, do they have any input? Because again, I've been flying model airplanes since I was a kid. That's why I joined the AMA is because you got an insurance policy through them in the event that you had a problem. But, you know, you got these recreational drone pilots out there that that's the last thing they're thinking about. Next thing you know, they fly it through somebody's window or they get a little careless and they fly it into uh, into the line of a car. And next thing you know, it's going through the windshield. I mean, is there an insurance issue here? And, and what would you recommend? Do you carry insurance? Well, I only fly recreationally, and I am an AMA member, so I feel that their secondary insurance has been good enough. I'm also a very conservative flyer. I fly early in the morning when people aren't around. I certainly don't violate the rules, even though I am a 107 pilot. I still fly recreationally, and I comply with the rules in terms of you know not flying over people, flying line of sight. So I feel that the secondary insurance is fine. The other thing that I don't do is I don't take stupid chances in terms of, you know, like flying over, like I had the boat show outside my window. I didn't fly my drone over multi-million dollar yachts because I do worry about what would happen, you know, if I nicked one by mistake. You know, other people don't. But the one thing I can say is that there are very few incidents or accidents out there involving drones, which doesn't mean that it can't happen. It just has been pretty limited. In terms of insurance, there's a number of insurance options available out there, and certainly commercial pilots have to get it because a lot of their clients require commercial insurance. And there are even like hourly insurance providers. So for small businesses, if you don't need a policy that's good 
all year long. You can get it like for a job, you know, for three or four hours, whatever you're working. But yeah, definitely people should be concerned about insurance and they should be concerned about whether they're going to do damage. I mean, that's that's how people should fly. And I think the vast majority of people are concerned about that. But, you know, in every industry, just like, you know, you have pilots that are hot dogs, hot doggers, or whatever you call it, you know, you have the same with, uh, with drone pilots. And then one last question, and that is training. You know, if somebody wanted to, to learn more, they may not necessarily want to go through all of the rigors of, of getting a certificate, but just want to sit through some training or get some practical training. Any advice as far as where they should go and, and who offers that kind of training? Is it is it online and are they going to get enough information or do they need to do something in person? Well, I mean, what I personally recommend, and, and this is something that I did, there you can probably take courses now. I know that Women Who Drone has Airbnb experiences where they teach you to fly and definitely think that's something that one could check out. But when I was first starting, I would buy from, and I still buy from small local dealers and I have them work with me to set up the drone and depending on where you are, Uh, A lot of the local hobby shops that I have experience with would actually take you out, fly with you for, you know, half an hour or an hour, and familiarize you with the drone. And I would definitely recommend new people doing that, finding a local hobby shop where someone will either do that as part of the sale, or even if you had to pay, I think it's definitely worth it. You'll have a much better experience if someone helps you set up the drone the first time and flies with you for 30 or 40 minutes. And you being a former FAA litigator, one of the things that, of course, we still see a problem with is laser pointers and the idiots that are out there pointing lasers at aircraft and, you know, the the threats. And they're, they're not, you know, just veil threats. I mean, these these are threats that by the United States government that says if we catch you, we're gonna we're gonna punish you to the full extent of the law. If you have somebody that's flying a drone in a careless and reckless manner, what kind of penalties and has there been any penalties levied by the FAA in this regard for people that have just blatantly gone out there and, and put, you know, people, aircraft in danger using a drone? There have been. A lot of the commercial operators believe that there haven't been enough of those penalties, but there have been. I mean, clearly the FAA is, I mean, there's only, what, 5,000 inspectors, and they're not everywhere. A lot of the enforcement really comes from the local police, but in a lot of areas, they don't really know what their jurisdiction is. So it really, it has been an education process, I know, for the FAA and local police departments. I think the local police have more jurisdiction than a lot of times they choose to use. So for example, if you're operating a drone over a large crowd of people in a way that's reckless and 
I think in a lot of jurisdictions, the police could stop you or arrest you or issue an appearance ticket for, let's say, reckless endangerment. And they've done that. I mean, I just spoke with a pilot a couple of weeks ago who was actually arrested in New York City near LaGuardia for flying his drone. And the, and this is where it's really unfortunate, the disconnect between people's ability to buy drones and their actual knowledge of the rules that they walk into. I mean, this guy had no idea that what he was doing was in controlled airspace, that there was any kind of issue. In New York City, you definitely have to worry about the police. The FAA has had some pretty stiff penalties. I mean, as much as seventeen or $20,000 I've seen. So the enforcement's out there, especially in controlled airspace and in areas, for example, firefighting, uh, that's taken very seriously. And there's a law that covers that. I forget what the uh, penalties are, but interfering with firefighters, flying in a TFR. Somebody uh, here on Miami Beach was arrested for flying before the football game um, a couple of weeks ago. So, yeah, I mean, there has been enforcement, uh, but unfortunately, there's no publicity, really. So there's no general deterrence. And, you know, with enforcement, you can have specific deterrence, which is, you know, finding the individual. But if the rest of the community isn't aware of it, then there's no general deterrence. But I do think, and I think if we're going to end on a high note, is that in all these years, there's only been one verified incident of a drone colliding with a manned aircraft, and that was the helicopter in New York City. And obviously, one is too many, and the person that was flying it was completely oblivious to uh, how reckless he was. He was like two and a half miles beyond line of sight when he hit that, uh, that helicopter. But there's been no deaths. There's been no major incidents. So that tells you something. I mean, with all the millions of drones that have been sold, the system has been safe. And there really aren't as many issues as some people were afraid there would be. You know, I want to touch on one thing that you said, Loretta, that went over without a lot of notice, and that is the women in droning. I mean, we have struggled in aviation for many years to try to get more and more women involved. And fortunately, at this point in time, we have a number of women being encouraged and, and joining in the ranks of becoming a pilot. And we see that on the airlines more and more with the number of female pilots flying commercially. But for younger people, especially younger women, to get involved with drones, there's no barriers as, as there have been in the past with general aviation getting women in the cockpit. And I love it when I hear that, that more and more women are getting involved because it is a, an avenue towards a career that is just beginning and they can get in on relatively the ground floor. And this is going to be a booming piece of aviation in the future. Yeah, one of the things that has been very depressing is that even though the barrier to entry is so low, the number of women that have their Part 107 certificates is about 6%. It's a very, very small number, and it is mystifying. There are a number of other barriers that are not FAA or test-related. 
It is a problem. But Women Who Drone is a great organization. I'm on their advisory board. Women and Drones is another organization. There are a number of organizations that do support women. And the women that join these groups, which at least Women Who Drone, there's Facebook groups, Amelia Dronehart. They're a great way for women to find the support that they sometimes need to make it in what is still very much a man's world, even in in the drone business. So I definitely encourage any women or girls to look into those groups because they will find encouragement. And if anybody's interested in, in those women groups out there in our audience, you can email us at our flightsafetydetectives.com, and we'll make sure that Loretta gets the information and, and she can get back to you. Well, I think this has been an awesome discussion. Thank you, Loretta, for coming in and, uh, and sitting down with us. Uh, I think we're going to probably have you back as this evolves, and especially to see what happens coming out of the MPRM as a final rule because again you're going to still have those folks that are going to shake their head they're going to push back they're not going to like maybe what the faa final rule is and so that will create some level of discussion so really appreciate your expertise and at least the education that i got i mean i've been flying drones i am a 107 pilot as well but you forget some of the little things because I don't use it every day. I don't do it every day. Kind of like flying, um, you know, manned aircraft. It's the little things that'll bite you. So I appreciate uh, the fact that you spent the time with us, educating me and John, you know, and reinforcing what little we know about drones and what more there is to learn. So thanks for coming in today. Oh, my pleasure. Well, John. Uh, I think it's uh, been another great episode and, you know, the fact that you are with Loretta and I'm out roaming around the countryside. Um, we're looking forward to at least spending some time together. I think we need to have Loretta come in when we do a video podcast for, on our YouTube channel so that uh, we can actually have a drone there and maybe we can get the uh, drone queen to do some uh, performances for us. <laughs> <laughs> That would be good. That would be good. Yeah, a little demonstration goes a long way, so I think that would be entertaining. So uh, I'm looking forward to that. So I will give you kind of the last word before we wrap it up. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining us. If you have any, want to contact us again, flightsafetydetectives.com. If you'd like to help contribute to keep this show alive, you can do so on that website as well. And we always appreciate your feedback. John and I have talked about it on every show. We're trying to establish kind of a format. We occasionally have segments that we've added into the show. One of the segments, of course, is what would you do? And we're going to be talking about the question that we asked during the Kobe Bryant episode. And that was, if you were put in the position of a pilot, you're flying a celebrity or high-profile person, you're trying to accomplish the mission, they're depending on you, what's the decision you're going to make to try to accomplish the mission? or not accomplish the mission to ensure the highest levels of safety. So we're going to, uh, we're going to review the emails that we got and uh, we'll give you some of the feedback that we received on that question. So you can always contact us, like John said, through our website, or you can contact us via email direct at flightsafetydetectives with an S 
at gmail.com. So again, for my co-host and partner in crime, John Golia, I'm Greg Fife, and we want you to fly safe. To listen to more episodes of the show, go to flightsafetydetectives.com or the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association at pama.org and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Catch us next time when John Golia and Greg Fife talk about all things aviation. Thanks for listening. Hey friends, are you struggling to attract and retain top talent? If you're worried about recruiting and retention, consider Insperity, a leading HR provider. They'll help you improve hiring and compensation practices so you can spend more time growing your business and less time on HR. Visit Insperity.com and download their free ebook on how to build your dream team. Don't let a lack of talent hinder your success. See how Insperity provides HR that makes a difference at Insperity.com. Hey parents, Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to-do list, teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, Kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. You can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity. Set up chores and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com podcast.